Hello, everybody. Welcome to the latest and greatest episode of Inside the Hexagon. I am your host, as always, Phil Lanides, and I am glad to welcome back my co-host, Josh Molina. Josh, it's good to have you back. Glad our uh, schedule is lined up. Oh, man, I'm really happy to be back, Phil. And I'm really disappointed, though, too. I was so looking forward to one of the shows I missed was Ronda Rousey versus Misha Tate. Yeah, I totally dropped the ball there, but you did a great job. You picked it up and, you know, it was a great show. Um, but I'm glad I can return. This is a really good show. The trilogy fight, you're going to get into it. So it's nice to be back, even if it doesn't involve the dislocation of Misha Tate's arm. God, but. I would have happily, <laughs> happily let you do that one after I had forgotten about the dislocation and... That was gnarly. Like that was that was nasty. And Misha Tate is one tough chick. No, no doubt about it. That was gross. So, all right. But uh, inside the hexagon is about the walking through the major events, fighters, and milestones of Strike Force, which was a very important and innovative MMA promotion that existed from 2006 until 2013. And on today's episode, we'll be discussing Strike Force Barnett versus Cormier, which took place May 19th, 2012, at the HP Pavilion in San Jose, California, on the card. We would finally see the finals of the heavyweight Grand Prix as Josh Barnett and Daniel Cormier would face off. Uh, things had been uh, held off for a while because Cormier had injured uh, his hand, I believe, and now he was healed up and ready to go. And then in another long-awaited bout, Josh uh, mentioned this briefly, but we'd get to see the completion of a lightweight title trilogy between champion Gilbert Melendez and former champion Josh Thompson. In addition, we'd see a rematch between Mike Kyle and a man he previously knocked out, former light heavyweight champ Fejal Cavalcante, as well as a matchup between two rising stars in Chris Spang and Nishan Burrell. Should mention Inside the Hexagon is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. You can check out the other shows on the network at evergreenpodcast.com. But let's talk about the fallout from the aforementioned Tate versus Rousey card. Very clear a star had been born at that event as Ronda Rousey had pulverized Misha Tate's left elbow to take her bantamweight title. And Rousey was now clearly the it girl in women's MMA and big things were on the horizon for her. She does fight one more time in strike force. So we'll talk about her more uh, on that episode. In, in addition, Josh Thompson had returned from another extended absence due to injury to take a decision win over KJ Nunes while Jacare Souza had submitted Bristol Marunde, a short notice replacement to take his, uh, sorry, to stake his claim for another crack at the middleweight belt and then finally longtime pride star Kazuo Misaki had outpointed Paul Semtex Daly which closed out the strike force careers of both of them but this card that we're talking about tonight this card was originally supposed to feature Nate Marquardt versus Tyron Woodley possibly for the vacant welterweight title but that would be moved to a later date uh, Marquardt was a, an interesting signing he was a former UFC middleweight title challenger uh, he had been released by the UFC eight months earlier after some issues with hormone with his hormone levels uh, which we'll discuss a bit when we get to Marquardt's strike force debut so we'll talk more about that in the future uh, but that bout likely, likely was moved because we ended up with the Grand Prix finals and the Melendez Thompson uh, title fight on this card so we should talk about those a bit as most strike force fans remember thompson and melendez had first class for the 155 pound belt all the way back in 2008 in front of a raucous crowd that witnessed a masterful masterful performance from the punk to win the belt from el nino via unanimous decision 15 months later in 2009 with josh missing a, another chunk of time due to injury melendez would gain revenge in a clear decision taking home the gold and that was probably my favorite fight out of the three of them 
It was an awesome fight. Uh, now these two, U, uh, sorry, not UFC, <laughs> these two strike force stalwarts uh, would face each other one more time with the title on the line. And this was a little bit different of a fight. There was more of an edge to this one coming in. The friendly rivalry had turned more serious and personal at this point with Melinda saying that while he respected Thompson, he had to quote, try and kill end quote his rival. And, uh, Thompson, for his part, he was still having fun. He even stole a kiss uh, from Melendez's championship belt at the pre-fight press, press conference. So they seem to have different mindsets uh, coming into this one. Yeah, I wanted to let you know, and this kind of blew my mind. I don't know if you know anything about this, Phil, but I did a little research for the show. Uh, not quite your level, but you know enough for me to keep the gig for at least one more show in your <laughs> eyes. Um, so according to the Wrestling Observer Newsletter, Dana White had actually tried to book BJ Penn versus Gilbert Melendez for this show in San Jose. And I'm going to read directly from the Wrestling Observer Newsletter so I don't paraphrase. This is exactly what was written. Penn wasn't interested in the fight. Penn had said he considered fighting in Strike Force as a step down and wasn't willing to do it. For the long term, Showtime and UFC really need to get something going where talent can move back and forth. Right now, Showtime wants exclusivity. That's putting a ceiling on Melendez since all his mostly, all his most potentially opponents. He, uh, this is Dave Meltzer's writing. This is why I oh, shouldn't try to read it. Like wonderful, it. wonderful. <laughs> so um, basically, you know, I'll, I'll like put his, it my his word. like his best opponents or the best options for his opponents. Yeah, yeah, he the can't best. Face them. The best options for his opponents at this, at this stage of his career were in the UFC. And then Meltzer writes, if talent could move freely, a lot more creative matchmaking could be done and good prospects could be exposed first on Showtime and not have ceilings on their upside. If Melendez and Ronda Rousey could be booked on a UFC pay-per-view or a Fox show, when they come back to Showtime, they'd be more valuable and at least in theory, draw higher ratings. If UFC guys and Penn is the perfect example who could have interesting fights on a Showtime card, but weren't locked into being Strike Force's exclusive fighters, they'd probably be less negative about appearing there. Otherwise, it's inevitable. Interest in the Strike Force brand will do nothing but decline this year. And that line is so prophetic because, as you're going yeah. to talk about, we did see Strike Force decline, and with this show, we saw that. So, I, I mean, did you know there was a possibility of a BJ Penn Gilbert Melendez fight? I did, and I read that there was actually they tried to put Josh Thompson's teammate in there, Gray Maynard, another UFC lightweight, uh, who was uh, in line for a title shot to to face Melendez too. That they they had looked at both of those options. I didn't know that Penn had declined it. I wasn't aware of that, but I did know that BJ Penn was a possibility for this, which would have been, that would have been an extremely intriguing matchup. I'm glad it didn't happen because I wanted to see uh, Gilbert and Josh lock up one more time. Like I wanted to see a definitive, you know, Hey, this is, uh, this is the guy that won this trilogy. Um, we wouldn't, I, I don't know that we would get the definitive winner, which we'll talk more about later, but yeah, I was, I was aware of the BJ Penn thing. Didn't know he declined it. I, I guess I can see his point, I guess, but uh, yeah, I, I mean, and Dave Meltzer's points there. I mean, it makes sense. I don't think it would have mattered. I really don't. I mean, you're basically what you were saying there made me think of like NXT, like to, you know, the main, the main, uh, what, you know, the main card, like that event, your, your positioning strike force to be kind of the, the, the pipeline, the talent feeder and guys like Gilbert and Rhonda aren't going to stay 
you know, in Showtime for that. So you end up having like much lower level of fighters. I, the only way I think it could have worked would have been if they had their own, you know, like basically the way that the WEC was 125, 135, 145, and 155, it kind of had their own divisions. It, you know, it was a different thing. And then when UFC like started those divisions, there was no more need for it. And that's, so there was never really a need for strike force once they, they bought him. I don't, I don't even really know why they bought him, except they just wanted the, the big main fighters, you know, and that was which they got. So yeah, I, the, the, like they were rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic at this point. I mean, it was, it was over with things were on their way down. So it, it wouldn't, I really don't think it would have mattered, but Anyways, let's get back to this card. Cormier Barnett was never really in the cards when Strikeforce uh, started its heavyweight Grand Prix as DC wasn't even part of the original eight. However, due to Alistair Overeem being released by the promotion, the AKA star on the rise was inserted into the tourney and had knocked out Bigfoot Silva in convincing convincing fashion to earn a berth in the finals. Uh, Barnett, for his part, had submitted Sergey Haritanov to get uh, his spot in the finals. And so we were going to be treated to a, a, what looked on paper to be probably a competitive fight. I would have definitely given the, the, uh, the, the, uh, the edge to Barnett who had a massive, massive experience advantage as well as a weight advantage. And so I probably would have gone with Barnett uh, in, in advance of this, but uh Hey, we'll talk more about what happens there. And then lastly, originally it was supposed to be Bobby uh, Volker taking on Nishan Burrell, uh, but Volker had, had to pull out with injury, and so Chris Bang was a replacement, which makes, uh, you know, Volker versus Burrell. Volker had fought several times in Strike Force. It would have made more sense for that to be on the main card versus Chris Bang and uh, Nishan Burrell, but we'll, we'll talk more about that. But that brings us to the event itself. Strike Force Barnett versus Cormier again took place on May 19, 2012, at the HP Pavilion in San Jose, California, in front of a crowd of only 5,413 fans. What makes it even more depressing is that only 2,804 of those tickets were sold, which meant 2,609, almost as many as almost half of the people there had been comped to be there. And that just shows you just how far Strikeforce had fallen at this point. I mean, a couple of years earlier, you've got Thompson Melendez, you know, in the co-main event, you've got in the main event, uh, you know, he the heavyweight Grand Prix finals. I mean, uh, you you got to think you're going to get 10K, you know, 10,000 fans into Strike Force's home base. But even a big card in San Jose at this point in the promotion couldn't even draw half of what they they likely would have used to just a couple of years earlier. Yeah, let me push back a little bit on that, Phil. I mean, obviously what you said is true and it's very disappointing, but. It was not really the original Strike Force, even though they were a separate brand at this time. With UFC owning things, the promotion was was entirely different. It wasn't that scrappy, we're the competitor, we're going to do everything we can, we're going to talk to local media, we're going to make connections to try to fill the house as they had tried to do in the past. Essentially, the Strike Force crew would heavily promote the, that those shows to the locals, and it would result in ticket sales. As great as Daniel Cormier is now, back then, nobody knew who he was. He was just this guy who was on the rise. And aesthetically, he did not look like a star. And uh, Josh Barnett, back then, was obviously a former UFC champion, but he was kind of toward the end. You know, he didn't see him as, as in his prime. But... I would like to note that the Wrestling Observer noted that despite the low attendance, the show itself drew the highest rating since Fedor oh. versus Dan Henderson on uh, Showtime. So okay. it drew a high TV rating. But 
I just feel like UFC was really just setting this thing up to fail. And yes, we didn't have a big house, but also it was not the same strike force either. So no, I guess we're saying true. the same thing, but, but different ways. Yeah, that's true. And I, I couldn't find the ratings. So I'm glad that you saw that, that they did have good ratings for the show. You know, that's definitely something, but I just, you know, look, it was North Bay versus South Bay, Josh versus Gil, you know, the trilogy yet they hadn't fought in three years. You know, they, both of their two fights before this were barn burners and like, you still can't draw a good crowd. Like that's just, you know, it's just it's just bad, and the tr- the strategy was likely different, as you said, um, but but it didn't work. So just unfortunate from that perspective. But regardless, uh, you mentioned the the ratings. We did have Morrow, Frank, and uh, Pat Militich back on the call for what looked like a really solid card on paper. So let's jump into the event. We'll uh, we'll run through the undercard results. Bobby Green defeated James Terry via split decision at 155 pounds. At 205 pounds, Guto Innocente defeated Virgil Swicker via unanimous decision. All of the undercard fights ended in decision. Another 205-pound bout, Jean Vellante defeated Derek Memon via unanimous decision. At 170 pounds, Quinn Mulher Hearn, excuse me, defeated Yuri Villafort via split decision. And then at 155 pounds, Isaac Valley Flag in what had to be considered an upset defeated Jay-Z Cavalcante via split decision. Well, this brings us to the main card. I don't understand again why this card was on the why this fight was on the main card. Uh, I you know wasn't aware of either of these guys. Even as I prepared for this, I was aware of Nishan Burrell, but I'd never heard of Chris Spang before. Uh, I believe he's related to Andreas Spang, who is a fighter that I do remember, maybe from Bellator or something like that. But, anyways, um, just kind of weird that this. I mean, even Jay Z Cavalcante has at least some name value you know bobby green was an up-and-comer at this point like why i don't understand why one of those their fights was not jean volante much more of a name than any of those yeah. two guys yeah yeah, yeah exactly so i i don't i don't understand why this made it onto the card but it ended up being a, an entertaining fight so there's that but coming into the fight spang who was a swedish national a swedish national national now fighting out of vegas was four and one uh, he was the son of a former boxer and he'd split his two strike force fights Burrell was 8-1 coming in and 3-0 and in strike force. He was coming off a split decision win over James Terry. Was looking to establish himself as a star to keep an eye on. These two came out striking right away, then settled into kind of trying to find their spots. Spang got in a nice head kick, followed by a good straight punch. Must have scored some points. Uh, both fighters then threw left hooks at the same time, and Spang's landed flush. Burrell was not uh, rocked, excuse me, and clearly hurt. He was just eating punches and kicks, barely hanging on. Uh, and then Burrell looked, I mean, he looked like he was out on his feet to me. And when he fell to the mat, referee Josh Rosenthal stepped in to stop it. Uh, Burrell was trying to reassure the docs he was okay, but he was clearly still out of it. He kept saying, I'm not laying down. He was trying to get back up. Uh, so, you know, warrior heart, but he had really eaten some big shots, and, and it was definitely a justified stoppage. Yeah, I agree with you. I was like, why is this show, why is this fight on the main show? I've never heard of these guys before. It turned out to be a good thing. <laughs> it was a really exciting yeah. few seconds. Uh, I've never seen somebody throw so many knee shots to the head in a matter of whatever it was, a couple of minutes. It was crazy. He kept trying to do that that Muay Thai clinch, and he's trying to hit him with the knee, and he was connecting. And I'm just like, why is this guy not falling? But then every time he'd pull back and start boxing, he would actually hurt him more than with the knees. And so I was just like, rude him, like, just box him. You'll knock him out if you do that. Uh, 
So it was a really interesting fight. I've never seen a guy take so many shots like that to the head. A guy just loading up over and over. Um, Spank's kind of an interesting looking dude. He looks like a swimmer. Got a bit of a swimmer's body. He did not look like a fighter. I was really surprised to see him pull this off. But uh, it was a good moment for him. Good victory. Yeah, he. Uh, I believe the commentator said that he was uh, like a, a competitive gymnast when, when he was in his teens. So... Maybe that's where the, the, you know, the body or the look of the body comes from. Good looking guy. And, uh, you know, looked like he could have had a future. But interestingly, uh, both these guys will be done with strike force after this. Both moved over to the UFC. Spang only fought once in the the octagon and lost. He only completed, uh, excuse me, competed a few more times. Uh, retired in 2016 with a 6-3 record. And by the way, as we record this in February of 2022, he's only 34 years old now. So that means when he fought, you know, 10 years ago for on this card, he was 23, 24. And then, yeah, only only fought a, a few more times. So kind of kind of interesting. Uh, Burrell fought a handful of times in the UFC and Bellator. He's still competing today and currently holds a 19 and 11 record, which brings us to the second fight of a four fight main card at 205 pounds. Fajal Cavalcante took on Mike Kyle. Kyle was 19-8-1-1 coming in. The AK product was looking to build off his decision win over Marcos Rogerio de Lima in Strikeforce the previous December. Uh, Kyle was supposed to fight Gegard Mousasi in March at the Tate versus Rousey event, but he got injured and had to pull out. Instead, he would face the former champ in Fajal on this card. Fajal was 11-3 coming in. He was also coming off a win with his coming via punches against Yoel Romero on that same September card. That was one where, Josh, if you remember, we uh, that was like the main event of the undercard, and there was a much like a bad fight that this could have definitely replaced on the main card, and it was, was a barn burner of a fight. So definitely go back and check that out. Yeah, uh, and I just wanted to say if if I was Mike Kyle too, I would have figured out a way to get out of a fight with Gekhard Musasi. Yeah, there was no way well, he was going to win that fight. Well, this one didn't. <laughs> this didn't. This one didn't go very well for him. So we'll we'll get to that in a second. But as mentioned earlier, this was a rematch. Kyle had knocked out Feijão. With punches inside the hexagon back in 2009, so the Brazilian was looking to get revenge. While both of these guys were looking to position themselves to get a shot at the vacant light heavyweight title, and a big win here could go a long way towards making that happen. Uh, but this, like I said, would be a quick one. Touch of the gloves to start things off. Feijão landed a brutal right knee to the head really quickly, and it stunned Kyle, made him stumble back. Feijão followed up with some punches, most of which missed, uh, but the, a few of them looked like they might have hit the back of the head. But with Kyle's head kind of leaning forward, the the champ or the former champ grabbed a tight guillotine, wrapped him up in his guard, and Kyle stood. And I remembered this when I when I saw him in the position. I was like, "Oh, I think he tries to slam him." And Kyle stood with Feijão wrapped around him and tried to slam his way out, but Feijão like rolled with it and ended up in an even tighter guillotine and got the tap and. I think this was over. This was over pretty quick. Not a good. Not a good look for Mike Kyle. Yeah, by trying to slam him, he actually whiplashed yeah, his it, own neck. It made it worse. worse. Yeah, it made it worse. Yeah, that was crazy. Um, I like this fight. Fajal came out, took care of business. He was determined, and I really liked Fajal as a fighter. Uh, obviously, he was inconsistent, and sometimes he looked great, and sometimes he looked like he was dead tired and out of shape or had to cut too much weight or whatever. But I liked how he hurt him and jumped on him. He did the standing guillotine. He was going to win. There was no way he was going to let this dude come back, and I thought it was a good moment for, for Fajal. 
Yeah, definitely a, a signature win for him for sure. Uh, so the official result, Fejal Cavalcante defeated Mike Kyle via submission at 33 seconds of the first round. But unfortunately for the former champ with what should have been a real signature moment after the fight, uh, a couple months at, or uh, about a month after the fight, Fejal was revealed it tested positive for the banned substance Stenozolol, the one that I always have trouble saying. As a result, the fight was overturned to a no contest by the, by, by the CSAC, and he was fined $2,500 and suspended for a year. Fejal's management, which is, um, oh man, now of course I think of his and I got his head in my, I totally am blanking on his name, but he was, uh, he was Anderson Silva's manager for a long, Ed Soares. There we go. Ed Soares, I think he runs the LFA now. Uh, he protested the test, said that he believed that it was an accident and that uh, Fejal was innocent. Regardless, it held, and Strikeforce now had its third major fighter to fail a drug test following Chris Cyborg and King Mola Wall. Uh, this, of course, would end Fejal's run with Strikeforce because he was suspended for a year, and by the time uh, you know his suspension was up, the promotion would close its doors. So this would be it for him and Strikeforce. He would move over to the UFC for an ill-fated run there that saw him go 1-5. I don't remember Fejal being in the UFC. Uh, maybe this is why, uh, but he re- retired in 2017 with a 13-7 record. Just, I mean, yeah, he won the light heavyweight title in Strikeforce. No one can take that away from him, but with the – you know, the, the, the failed test and just, you know, a kind of middling 13 and seven record to be as talented, you know, as he was with his hands and all that. And to be training with the Noguera brothers and Anderson Silva. I mean, I, I just, I, I, you can't say he had the type of career that he should have had. Yeah. I'm not sure why Fajal didn't have a better career in UFC like you. I can't even think of a UFC fight that he had. Um, he was good enough, but there's just something about some fighters there. They're athletes, they're good fighters, but mentally they just aren't there. They just, I mean, they don't want it, and you have to want it when you're competing at that level. And I got the sense that Fajal was was like that. And, you know, he did knock out, was it King Mo to win that title? And King Mo, I mean, you know, he didn't have the best jaw. So it was a good victory for him. But, you know, Fajal was like a good C-plus, B-minus MMA career. Yeah, I'd say that's a I, man. I'd say probably more like a B to B minus, just because of the opportunities that he had in front of him, and you know, it's just is just unfortunate the way that it went. He did get. Uh, I'm looking him up real quick. He did get a fight of the night in the in the UFC. Let's see which uh, which which one that was. Uh, he lost to Tiago Silva, uh, but via knockout, come by way of punches in the first round, and that was that one fight of the night. So he did have that. Um, he lost, he beat Igor Pokrachik, uh, Pokrachik, I think that's how you say that, uh, which is, that was, he was a good fighter. So he beat him, but he lost to Ryan Bader, Patrick Cummins and OSP. And then he fought one time outside of, uh, outside of the UFC. He knocked out this guy, Dan Konicki, um, which he earned a Bellator contract with that win back in 2017, but then never fought again, which is kind of interesting, but to, to, you know, Ooh. Those are good fighters, though, that he lost to. I mean, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. Those are, I mean, obviously, Bader's the heavyweight champ in in, uh, in Bellator, and, you know, OSP's nobody, uh, you know, he's not, nothing to sneeze at, and Patrick Cummins is a tough dude. So, yeah, definitely. Um, you know, to, to you know, yeah, and to answer your question, yeah, he knocked out King Mo um, to, to win the belt and then lost it to Dan Henderson by TKO the next, uh, in his next fight. Uh, you know, there's always the question of when a guy gets busted, it's like, well, is this the first time that he did it, or is this what he's been doing all along? 
and just this is the first time he got caught. And then now he goes to the UFC and things are progressing and, you know, drug testing is more stringent and all that stuff. And all of a sudden he goes, you know, one in uh, actually it wasn't one in five. I apologize. It was actually one in four uh, that he had a four fight. Uh, no, I'm sorry. He did have a five fight. Yeah. So I can't do math. <laughs> he had a five fight run. That's what I, that's where I got the one in five. He had a five fight run. He only won one of those fights. He lost four of them. So my apologies there, but yeah, I, it does beg the question of, you know, maybe performance enhancers had something to do with that. And that's why, you know, that's why it wasn't as good, I, but we obviously we don't know that we'll never know that. So, but, uh, Mike Kyle, for his part, he will be back on the very last Strike Force event the following January to take on Musasi in that long-awaited matchup. So, looking forward to covering that. All right, we are at the co-main event: 155 pounds, Gilbert Melendez versus Josh Thompson for the Strike Force lightweight title. Melendez was 20 and two coming into this one. He had defended his belt in a competitive scrap with Jorge Masvidal the previous December, and he had won six straight overall since losing the belt to Thompson all the way back in 2008. El Nino was clearly on a roll here. Thompson, for his part, was 19-4. and four. He was 3-1 and one in his last four coming in, was coming off a decision win over K.J. Nunes two and a half months prior to this. That had been his first bout in 15 months, as once again injuries had waylaid the Punk's fight plans, but he was back and he was ready to go. So let's jump into this fight. This fight, there's a lot to, to slice into. But Gilbert got a takedown early on. He was really looking strong. However, Josh was able to wall walk back up, and they, they were back on the feet. This was kind of – we would see that a lot during this fight. Gilbert would get a takedown and Josh would get right back up. There was Josh was just so adept at getting back to his feet, probably from training with all those wrestlers at AKA, but overall both fighters were much more patient in the opening round than they, in comparison to the previous two fights when both of them were really pressing the action almost right away. But first round really close in my mind, I gave it to Gil 10 to nine. Yeah, this was a round where you could tell these two had a lot of respect for each other because they were both very tentative and very cautious they were picking their spots. I thought Josh was a little too tentative. I guess I'm judging him a little bit more than I am Gilbert Melendez. Even though Gilbert Melendez had the better MMA career, you could argue. Um, I feel like Josh had more more skills as like a total complete fighter. So I'm always disappointed when Josh doesn't perform at the level that he should and uh, he did not in this round. Uh, they had a lot of respect for each other. It was a tactical game. There wasn't a whole lot of risk-taking. And Melendez got takedowns, and Josh couldn't stop them. And I think that made the difference in this round. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think you're spot on with that. Uh, in the second round, Gil was more aggressive to start things off, score with some strikes. Uh, Josh also countered pretty well, but that ended when Gil got a really nice lift and slam takedown. But again, Josh was able to get back up pretty quickly. So, uh, But I still think I would give the second round to Gil as well, 10-9. So I had him up 2-0 two to, two to nothing after two rounds. Yeah, Melendez was pressing the action. So you could say that they were about even, but Melendez was going forward. And Josh was going backwards a little bit, going side to side. So just in terms of controlling the pace of the fight, Melendez was winning. Uh, you know, it's hard to make a case that Thompson won the first two rounds because although he wasn't getting beat, he wasn't really doing anything to beat to beat Melendez. Uh, and Melendez was starting to land that right hand, and it was catching Thompson. And Thompson was going for those kicks. He would eventually get them but in this round he was just getting the range and he was missing so yeah i i had melendez winning both these rounds 
Well, I felt like things started to change in the third round. They really started heating up. Uh, in one exchange, Josh defended a takedown. Gill landed some follow-up strikes. Josh responded with a really solid one-two to the face. Really good stuff. Uh, more reminiscent of their first two fights. Later, Josh got a really nice trip takedown. It was kind of cool. Like he kind of put his foot behind Gill's foot and pushed him, like an almost like an STO in in pro wrestling. And uh, Gill did like a backward roll and landed right. It came up right on his feet, which was it was pretty cool. It was like a like a kung fu movie, you know, type thing. But uh, really great head movement. Kind of reminded me of some of the clips I've seen of, of Mike Tyson when he was younger, uh, just parrying punches and counter striking. Like, like Josh, or I'm sorry, Gill looked really good on his feet, but. Despite that, we should point out Gil's right eye was really starting to swell pretty good. And, and you know, at that point in the fight, it was like, oh, you're only halfway through. This could end up being a problem. It didn't seem to be bothering him at that point. But the middle frame was so much more difficult to, to score. Uh, I think I'd give it to Josh. Uh, but, man, it was it was really close. But I think I would have given it to Josh, given him his first round. Crazy thing about Josh Thompson is that when he actually tries to fight and pushes the action – and starts bouncing around on his toes, he's better than Gilbert. Like, every time he did this. But the thing is, he just didn't do it enough. Uh, you know, he was starting to catch him with those kicks, which is why Melendez's eye started to swell. And so it was a much better round for Josh because he was coming forward a little bit more. He was trying to press the action, and he was connecting. Close round. I thought, um, you know, Josh made his move and he had to make his move in this round if he wanted a chance to, to win this fight. I mean, I think we everybody knew there's no way either one of these guys was going to finish each other ever. So right. it was going to be a matter of who could win three out of five rounds. Well, it got close in the fourth round. And we'll talk about that. I will. I should. I do want to respond to one to something you said there. I, I think Josh is the more talented fighter. Like, I think he had more natural ability uh, than Gilbert. Um, I, I think the difference might have been that Gilbert just had more of a killer instinct than Josh. We've talked about this a lot, but and I uh, will we'll talk more about it later. But Josh was always smiling in the cage and really seemed to be an enjoy, you know, really seemed to enjoy himself. And after losing the belt, like he was almost overly respectful of Gil and, you know, said, hey, he's just, you know, he's about to have a baby girl and like, like just. I don't know that Josh had the killer instinct to the level of Gilbert and Gilbert. You could see it from the fight, the, you know, the first fight to the second fight to the third fight that by the third fight, like he was a man and like he was a killer and he was trying to take your head off. I I feel like Josh kind of still stayed the super nice guy that just really loved what he did and win or lose, he was going to do his best to put on a show. And that was, not always as in, that was more important than winning. I think sometimes to John and I'm somewhat from talking with him and somewhat from just reading the situation, but Gil was just all serious. And I, and I feel like Josh, maybe the third round was like, I got to get serious too. You know, I, I don't know. But uh, anyways, Josh, he didn't seem, I, I think to your point, like I just think that early on, he's just not as aggressive overall, fewer smiles than we were used to from the punk. So maybe he was starting to take it more seriously. Good opening to the fourth round, but Gil shut that down uh, with a really nice lift and slam takedown. Once again, Josh was able to get up pretty quickly. Uh, now, in addition to the swollen right eye, Gil was cut over his left eye and his face was really starting to look pretty messy. Uh, Josh secured a lightning quick trip takedown and he jumped right on Gil turned and Josh got the body triangle along with a rear naked choke kind of crank. 
uh, you know, Gill's trying to keep his, his, his chin down so that way Josh can't get the arm underneath. And it didn't lead to a finish, but it definitely gave Josh the fourth round. There's no question he won that round. So I had it 2-2 going into the final round. I don't think Melendez was in danger of being tapped, but it definitely looked good. And then when you couple that with Gill's face and Josh, you know, looking – uh, you know, pr- pretty fresh and and not you know definitely not as beat up as Gill. I I I felt like we had a two two match going into the final round. You know, I agree with you. Uh, this was a really good round for Josh Thompson. Gilbert he started to tire and he's bleeding. He knows he's bleeding. Josh Thompson sees the blood, and he stepped it up and he really sunk in that rear naked choke that crank. Problem is, both these guys were so sweaty at this time, and they're both tired. He just couldn't get enough friction there. And Gilbert defended really well, putting his chin down, uh, you know, so he couldn't really cut off his his throat. So I thought Josh made a good play here. Um, he probably would have lost that round had he not found that moment but that's what champions do they, they figure out a way to make something happen and although he wasn't able to tap him he tried and he won the round um, I just don't think he had enough strength and Melendez was so slippery because he was sweating so much to to finish it out Big roar of appreciation from the crowd to kick off the final and 15th round in total between these two. Another lift and slam takedown from Gil early on, but once again, Josh got right back up. Things things settled back into a a stand-up battle with Josh landing a nice hook. Uh, Josh had to deal with a bunch of eye pokes. We haven't really talked about this before. Uh, In the second fight, we saw a couple of eye pokes from Gil, and then this one, there were, I think, at least three, if I remember correctly. Uh, They didn't look to be intentional, just kind of the normal pawing that, you know, happens, but I felt like the ref could have really taken a point away by the second or third time. It's like, all right, even if you're not doing this on purpose, like it just happens too often. Uh, Ironically, if that had happened, I think Josh wins because he gets one, he gets one of the judges cards and then the other two end up being draws. So no, no, ends up being a majority draw. So if, yeah, if they had done that, this would have been a majority draw and then we definitely wouldn't have had a, a winner but anyways uh you know they josh made a really smart move got another trip takedown with under a minute left which seemed like it might seal the win for him i gave him the final round it was super close but i gave uh, i gave it three two um for thompson but if i had money if i was a betting man i wouldn't have bet on that because i it was just that close you know you mentioned the eye pokes and you remember i think it was the final one where gilbert kind of like was like no, I didn't yeah. poke it. My hand and then was they straight. Showed it on, and then they showed it in a slow-mo replay, and he definitely poked him in the eye. Yeah, and then I think Josh, because he's so competitive, saw Gilbert reacting that way, and he's like, fine, I'm not going to take the time. And then he started fighting again, you know. So, so yeah, they definitely could have taken a, a point away. Uh, but oh, it was a very close round. Uh, the take, You know, there was a takedown there. Uh, Josh Thompson did a good job taking him down toward the end of the round. Uh, but I thought Gilbert won the fight, and you can judge it round by round. You can judge it sort of like the whole tone of the fight. But I thought there were definitely more minutes where Gilbert was pushing the action, in charge, leading. Josh had moments, but it was just not consistent. And some of those close rounds, frankly, I gave. To, I know the judges gave it really close, but I gave to Josh. You know, and with Thompson, to me, the only clear round he won. Clearly, indisputable was the fourth fourth round. round. Yeah. So, yeah. 
I think Melendez won. For whatever the scores were, the right guy won that night, in my opinion. It was, it was 48-47 for Josh on one card and 48-47 on two judges' cards for Gil. So it, you can't get any closer and still have a winner. Uh, so, yeah, I... I I yeah uh, I I definitely could see Gilbert winning the fight. I felt like Josh won it. Um, I want this is the first time I'd actually ever seen the fight before, or at least that I can remember, and it, it was close. It just it was super close. I feel like if Josh had been more aggressive early on, he might have been able to steal around and definitely win it. But um, I can tell you that both both these guys think that they won the fight. I can tell you that. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, Josh was frustrated at the result this time. You could make a case. Again, it was rightfully so. This is a San Jose crowd. Unless you're from the Bay Area, it's hard to understand the feud or the not the feud, but the rivalry between North Bay and South Bay. I'm from the South Bay, so you know San Jose. It, it was you know Josh is my guy, uh, and this was a San Jose crowd. So while there was, I'm sure a bunch of people from San Francisco there, a bunch of scrap pack fans, there were a lot of booze. Which I, by the way, I'm not a huge fan of. I mean, these guys had put on a great fight like let's just be appreciative of that but it gets it can get pretty scrappy <laughs> with north bay and south let's bay, be so. let's be realistic phil i'm from southern california we Dude, don't like you're the from Rams. santa barbara you're we, from we, santa barbara we don't like we don't like the 49ers <laughs> we don't like the giants and we don't like anybody fighting out of san francisco no i'm yeah. kidding gilbert's great but but yeah it's really stupid to cheer for a fighter based on where they're from that's really lame uh, i mean i don't mind that because it's like if you have a connection to that town then that's cool i just don't like booing the other guy because you feel like your guy won it's like you know that's not his fault right like that that's more what i have an issue with i mean these two guys they had a lot of respect after the fight um but there just wasn't a lot of respect from, shown from the crowd, and I wasn't a big fan of it. I am 90 minutes from the Staples Center, Phil. That's all i got to say. Okay. All right. Well, <laughs> I, I, hate, I hate L.A. from a from the Bay Area perspective, and then being a Boston sports fan, I just especially a Celtics fan, I hate the Dodgers. I hate the Lakers. So, yeah. <laughs> what up? Um, anyways. Well, if, if I were you, I'd hate them, too, because – Success is a hard pill. Oh to swallow. my God! Shut up. <laughs> Shut up. How many rings is, the Celtics got? This okay. is the last podcast featuring Josh Molina. No. Yeah, no. yeah, exactly. <laughs> You're fired. You're fired. Uh, all right. Anyways, both fighters. It was kind of interesting. They were both asked about a fourth fight, and Josh seemed more down for it than Gil. I don't know why Gil would have done that because it did. It would have made no sense. He had two wins officially over Josh. Why risk that? And if you lose the fourth round, the, the fourth fight, now you got to do a fifth one. Like, I just, I don't think that he would have done that. Uh, he's, you know, basically kind of like up for whatever, so to speak. But again, the official official result, Gilbert Melendez defeated Josh Thompson via split decision, decision to retain the Strike Force lightweight title. Uh, this would be it inside the Hexcon for both these two pillars of Strike Force. Melendez would be scheduled twice to defend his title against Pat Healy in Strike Force, but would have to pull out both times due to a shoulder injury. In fact, one of those uh, resulted in a card, a strike force card being canceled, uh, which was interesting. We'll talk more about that when we get there. Uh, Thompson would be, would remain on the sidelines until strike force folded. And both these guys would move over to the UFC on the same card in April of 2013. 
with the Punk getting probably the most memorable finish of his career when he knocked out Nate Diaz. He's one of only two fighters to do that. While El Nino would get an immediate title shot against UFC champion Benson Henderson, which he would lose uh, in a, I'm sorry, Henderson would win, obviously, over in El Nino, sorry, uh, in a hotly, hotly contested split decision win. That was a very close one. Thompson would lose his next three in the UFC, which earned his release before heading to Bellator, where he wrapped up his career, winning two of his last three to bring his final record to 22-9-1. He co-hosts the Weighing In podcast with Big John McCarthy and provides commentary for Bellator events. And so the Punk, and I know he owns a couple gyms as well, so the Punk is still very much involved with the fight game. Melendez, yeah, go ahead. Can I just say something here? Uh, You know, when he knocked out Nate Diaz, I mean, that was something special because Nate Diaz is so good at not getting knocked out. I mean, he's a guy who fought Conor McGregor who's got a hammer in his left hand. I mean, everybody should go watch that fight. I mean, Josh Thompson, leg kicking, head kicking Nate Diaz. And it's just something rare. You just, you know, they should have kept him on for life just so they can keep showing that clip over yeah. and over and um, I got to say that Gilbert Melendez won that fight over Benson Henderson. There is no doubt in my it mind. It was super close. That, that was a super close fight. I don't know if that fight was in Vegas, but it was so much to me like, hey, our guy's better than your guy. And I was so mad that night. I remember that. But maybe I'll watch it again. But, I mean, I really felt Gilbert won. Yeah, that was a uh, that was a very, very close fight. I should mention on the, uh, the Josh Thompson knockout, that was probably the most – that was like a Chuck Liddell like level excited celebration after he won after he knocked him out like he was so so happy uh, to, to to get that win so which was pretty cool to see. Uh, by the way, that Benson Henderson fight, you want to get you said uh, you asked if it was in Vegas. It was not in Vegas. You want to guess where it was at? San Jose. San Jose. So <laughs> you can't accuse him of home you know home cooking because it was in. Uh, well, they should have. They should have booked in San Francisco, damn it! Cause yeah, that's... yeah. Then it would have been different. <laughs> then it would have been different. I don't uh, know. We uh, we maybe we should watch that fight sometime. But yeah, I, I maybe. Just, I mean, and, and you talk about Fajal's run in the UFC. I mean, Gilbert was great in Strikeforce. He was not great in the UFC. No, and and I'm about to talk about that in just a second. But uh, Melendez, he would have an extended run in the UFC. He was actually there longer than Josh. Followed up on that close loss to Henderson with a fight of the night decision victory over Diego Sanchez. Might be because of the UFC platform his most remembered fight. Uh, but that unfortunately would be his last win. He would uh, El Nino would would be defeated in his next five fights in the UFC, prompting him to wrap things up in 2019 with a 22 and eight record. Uh, pretty fitting that these guys would end their careers with nearly identical records. Again, Thompson 22 nine and one. Uh, and then Gilbert, 22 and eight. So the exact same amount of wins, uh, pretty crazy that they, you know, ended up like that. Uh, El Nino, I, I, you know, I gotta say, I don't know that he's officially retired. Um, I believe that he's done, but I don't know that he's officially done. Uh, Thompson is, I, you know, he's been out for five years at this point, so he's you know more likely to be done, but it's kind of hard to get these guys to say that they're actually retired. You know, it just, it's difficult to get them to, to, to really, really ride off into the sunset. So, but anyways, all right, well, this brings us to the main event, Daniel Cormier versus Josh Barnett in the finals of the Heavyweight Grand Prix. Two-time U.S. Olympian undefeated at 9-0 with seven finishes. D.C. was definitely the hometown favorite. Uh, he had gone, gotten to the finals by beating Jeff Munson in an alternate bout, and then he'd replace former heavyweight champ Alistair Overeem uh, to, to, to take on Bigfoot Silva, who he quickly dispatched via TKO in his next Grand Prix bout, and now he was in the finals. 
a former UFC heavyweight champion with a 31 and five record. Josh Barnett had to be considered the heavyweight, the heavy favorite here as he had a massive experience advantage. Also a size advantage. He was a catch wrestling practitioner who hadn't lost an MMA in six years. But Barnett had had issues with performance enhancers in the past, though he'd always maintained his innocence. But this had to be considered a chance for redemption for the War Master. He'd gotten into the finals of uh, at least one Pride open weight tournament. I think more than I think he was in the heavyweight uh, Grand Prix they had over there too, and he lost in the finals of the open weight tournament to Merkel Krokop. So you know this this had to be considered a, a again a shot at redeeming himself. But uh, once we got into the fight. Barnett used his seven-inch reach advantage clearly uh, to to uh, kind of own some some really nice strikes and uh, getting some nice scores there. However, DC answered back, scored with some solid punches of his own. DC was just so composed and poised for a guy that early in his MMA career in comparison. And you could just see how powerful he was. I mean, he was moving the larger Barnett around seemingly at will. The AKA product was clearly a better striker, though Barnett, scored with a straight right and a knee with, with under 20 seconds left that opened up a cut and drew some blood on the nose, basically started a mouse under DC's eye. But competitive round, I, I gave it to DC 10-9. Yeah, I agree with you. DC came out fighting like a lightweight. I mean, he was fast, and he was throwing punches, and he had good footwork. I mean, he was just a little bit ahead of uh, Barnett in terms of just timing and uh it was kind of a different sort of Daniel Cormier, I thought. I, th- I thought he made a really good mental adjustment. And that's what's, that's what's made Daniel Cormier so great over his career is he's obviously, you know, a great athlete, but he's also really smart. And when you're smart and you're a good athlete, you can kind of overcome things like not being in the best shape, you know, in most of your fights, uh, you know, who you're competing against. So I thought Cormier did a really good job here keeping the fight in the stand-up. And I bet Josh Barnett thought it would be a wrestling thing, and it, it wasn't. And no, he no, the price. definitely wasn't. Lots of crisp, crisp combos from DC in the second round. We, you know, I thought Barnett was able to to do some damage of his own, but DC was definitely showing that superior striking. He was doing more damage. Later in the round, Cormier got the takedown. He was doing some catch wrestling of his own, in my opinion, that just grinding his elbows and his hands on Barnett's face and just imposing his will on him, really violent short strikes. He cut Barnett open with a nasty short elbow. You could see Barnett was just grimacing with pain. It clearly hurt. His face was really becoming a mess. Much less of a competitive round, another 10-9 for for DC for sure. Yeah, he stayed busy in the stand-up. He was able to take Barnett down. Uh, it was a good round. DC kind of spent a good part of the end of the round just kind of on top of him, like you said, and just just grinding and powering him. And I think about this time, Josh Barnett's thinking, damn, this guy is a lot tougher than I thought. And, you know, he's got to be thinking I'm running out of options already in round two. Yeah, it was definitely looking like it was going to be DC's fight. Uh, the middle frame featured more striking with DC again winning that battle and around halfway through the round. DC with a, a an all-time highlight eventually or sorry essentially flipped Barnett forward into kind of like a suplex like if 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 DC had been standing next to Barnett it would have been like a vertical suplex drew a big reaction from the crowd pretty spectacular uh, though he wasn't able to do much with it and Barnett was able to get back up but more bad news for Barnett later on though is he caught a brutal right high kick that made a loud smack when it landed and you could see Josh kind of like 
like stumbled a little bit and I mean, he was hurt and he tried to fight back and viciously, uh, but his left eye was starting to close. He was bleeding all over his face. He had a few different deep cuts and another clear 10, nine round for Cormier. Yeah. That single leg takedown into the flip. That was weird. It was almost like a pro wrestling thing. I that's what I'm say saying. It. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Because, uh, Barnett had to do, he had to roll in order to make that happen. It wasn't as though DC just flipped this 250 pound man with one hand, you know, but it just shows how athletic, uh, Barnett was in order to just sort of like try to roll out of it, essentially. Not unlike what we saw, you know, earlier. I think it was a Gilbert who was, who rolled backwards and then yeah. kind of extended yep. on his feet. This was yep. the other direction. But, uh, you know, Barnett was, tough and what i started to see in this round was even though he was getting beat he was giving daniel cormier the toughest fight he has had up yeah until he, you career. gotta hand it to barnett josh was not backing down despite like just getting i mean he was getting beat up like literally like a guy getting beat up in a fight like he was getting beat up but he never stopped f fighting back he never stopped which was impressive to see all heart yeah, and Barnett actually landed a vicious knee to DC stomach. I don't know if you remember. Yes. That. Yep. Yeah, that was pretty brutal too. I don't know if they, I, I like, I don't know if they had the 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 cage like mic'd differently or what, but I just felt like there were a lot more smacks and like, you know, sounds from these guys hitting each other than I'm used to, or they just hit that hard. But there was a lot of like high impact strikes that that you could hear on the you know on the broadcast. Yeah, and DC kind of. He kind of ran, he didn't run, but he kind of moved away from Barnett yeah, after, after that. that. So yeah, yeah, yeah. that was a nice little move there. And I think it bought Josh Barnett some time. When, yeah, uh, I, I think DC knew that it was his fight and he was kind of starting to let his foot off the gas in the fourth and fifth round a little bit, you know, knowing that he had it in the bag. And so, like, let's not get too crazy and risk too much and, you know, possibly get knocked out. So um, that's that. Yeah, I, I think he was, you know, I think he was smart, but to his credit, like we said, Barnett was the aggressor uh, for a lot of this. And at the beginning of round four, that was a definite, you know, that was definitely the case. He was moving forward, landed a nice knee against the cage. DC landed both a left and a right high kick again, showing his versatility as a striker. And later in the round, he got another flip takedown. Although I think uh, Josh actually was rolling with this to try to get a leg lock because uh, Barnett did grab an ankle and uh, he, I mean, look for a second, like DC might be in trouble, but they were just both so sweaty, kind of similar to the, uh, the, the Thompson, you know, Melendez situation where just a lot easier later in the fight to get out when guys are sweating real bad. But uh, so DC was able to get out quickly, but man, Barnett's face, I mean, sporting the proverbial crimson mask as Morrow called it 10, nine DC once again. And it was clear that Barnett was going to need a, a finish in the last round in order to get a win here. Yeah, I, I was really starting to like the fight in this round. I mean, DC was winning, but but Barnett was still dangerous. Like, it wasn't the kind of fight where you knew, oh, this guy's got no chance of winning this fight. It was the kind of fight where, like, DC's winning, but Barnett can beat him if the right moment happens. Um, and I would say Josh Barnett maybe started to lay out a little bit of a blueprint for how to beat Daniel Cormier. And obviously being big helps. We saw that with John Jones. We saw that with Stipe. I mean, being longer, being taller, making Daniel Cormier sort of have to fight at different angles. And Barnett was not winning, but he was landing enough to show people like, hey, Daniel Cormier can get hit. And he was getting hit in this fight. 
Yeah, there's no question. This was not even despite the you know he's clearly winning the fight. Uh, he was going to earn it. You know, Josh was going to make him earn it. And really more of the same, not a lot to say about the fifth and final round. DC was mixing up his strikes and get, he got another good takedown. Barnett had his moments, but it was too little too late. Uh, you know, DC was the clear winner. Maybe you could give that final round to Josh, maybe. But I, I really, I gave it all, I gave all five to, to DC. He just, just the better fighter on this night. No question about it. Yeah, I, I agree with you. You might have given one round to uh, Josh, but it, they were close. Uh, well, there's like Josh Thompson, Josh Barnett. There's me. Yeah. I don't even know what I'm talking about anymore. Okay, so we'll just call it Barnett. Um, I thought it was a very good fight, and I saw two things. I saw Barnett really, you know, it's MMA terms, so don't hate me here, put over Daniel Cormier in a sense of Cormier got a huge rub winning this fight over Josh Oh, Barnett. yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. It, it was no longer was Daniel Cormier like – the guy with some talent who's up and coming like this dude could be world champion. Right. So he beat Josh Barnett so easily and he did it by flipping him and throwing him around the cage. It was just like incredible. Um, but at the same time, give respect to Josh Barnett for being sort of at the tail end of his career, taking on an Olympian, taking on a guy who would become one of the greatest MMA fighters of all time. He did a great job, even though there was a huge gap there. So good job to him. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm, I am gonna disagree with you on the whole uh, like tail end of his career here at this point because uh, I'm looking at his, I'm looking at his, uh, his stats. So 77, 87, 97, 07. He's only 34 at this point. So I, I wouldn't say that he was at the tail end of his career, although he'd had 35, you know, MMA fights at this point. So, uh, you know. Okay, but I yeah, I would not put him at the tail end of his career. I think he was still a very viable heavyweight. He probably wasn't, you know, in his prime at this point, but still very much a very viable heavyweight. And uh, since this fight, he's gone three and two. Um, so yeah. for whatever that's, you know, for whatever that's worth. But so he's not, no, nearly as active. Um, interestingly, he is, I, I thought that Josh had been more active. Uh, and I know I'm kind of jumping ahead a little bit here, but he's actually not fought MMA since 2016. So, which is just kind of interesting. I really thought that he'd been more active. He did fight a bare knuckle, uh, boxing fight in 2020. So yeah. for, for whatever, I feel like, was. yeah. And he did do some pro wrestling with uh new Japan pro wrestling. Yeah. Yeah. He's been very, yeah. and he's got, uh, it's called blood sport. Um, it's a oh, really, right. yeah. Very interesting pro, uh, pro wrestling, uh, thing I, I've watched clips of it. Um, it's under the GCW banner, which is uh, Game Changer Pro Wrestling, which is like now like one of the hottest indies out there. And John Moxley is their heavyweight champion and all this stuff. But uh, yeah, actually Moxley and and Barnett were actually supposed to wrestle, and then because of COVID, things got changed and stuff like that. But anyways, sorry, I didn't mean to. We kind of jumped out of order there, but uh, but yeah, it, it just was a very I guess. Yeah, sorry. Just, go ahead. I, Josh Barnett's he's kind of from the old school in that he had so many MMA fights, right? Like like yeah. now, was it Henry Cejudo like wins a title and defends yeah. it twice and retires? And retires, like, yeah. Give me a break, dude. You know, you, yeah. you got a real fighter fights till he gets his butt kicked. Yeah, he had, he's say. got uh, he's got forty three MMA fights and like I said, like he just he fought bare knuckle in twenty twenty. Like the guy's not a striker; he's a ground guy. He's a second degree black belt in BJJ. Like, you know, obviously, uh, in, uh, you know, catch wrestling, he's been, he's been fighting in MMA since 1997. So the dude's been fighting, you know, for 25 years, although again, he hasn't fought professionally as an MMA fighter since 2016, but anyways, 
yeah, dude, the guy's a, he's a ground guy and yet he's doing bare knuckle and winning, you know? So you got to give, I, I, Josh is one of my favorites by the way. I, cause he, he's obviously a massive pro wrestling fan. I love his like Japanese strong style style of pro wrestling. I like, he's a great talker. He's very uh, cerebral. I don't like the, you know, the performance enhancements, you know, he beat Randy Couture for the heavyweight title and then, you know, immediately tested, he tested positive and got, you know, got stripped and, uh, but yeah, so the title was stripped away and then he, he was fighting for affliction and, and he ends up getting a, an entire, uh, event canceled. Uh, he was supposed to take on, um, he was supposed to take on Fedor and, and, you know, like this would have been a huge deal for him. Uh, apparently if he won that fight, he was going to get a title shot against Brock Lesnar. I would have loved to have seen that fight, but he tested positive for steroids for a third time, you know? And, and so that's my beef with him is that, uh, the guys, the guys blown, you know, blown negative th- or, uh, you know, tested positive three different times. And that's not including issues, uh, in 2016, he was notified, notified of a potential USADA, uh, violation. Uh, but, uh, you know, it, it just, the guy he's used to way too much, you know, and, uh, it, there's just been a lot of issues with that. So I'm a huge fan of his, but he kind of leaves a bad taste in my mouth because of that kind of stuff. So yeah. anyways, well, I mean, a lot of those guys did, but I would say I would take Josh Barnett over Brock Lesnar today. That's how I think. Yeah, I, I, man, that w- I, I think, think that think would Josh have been Barnett a bad is, night. Yeah. I think that would have been a bad night for Brock. So, but <laughs> anyways, DC, very emotional after this win. He got a very nice title belt wrapped around his waist, which is a really cool moment. Nice interview after the fact. Daniel Cormier defeats Josh Barnett via unanimous decision to win the Strikeforce Heavyweight Grand Prix. Uh, this was supposed to be the last heavyweight fight in Strikeforce history, as it had been announced that the promotion's heavyweight division would be folded after this. However, Strikeforce scheduled a main event bout between DC and Frank Mir for later in the year. The event would end up being canceled. We'll talk more about that on a future episode. So instead, DC would actually end up fighting one more time for Strikeforce on the very last card, and as would Josh Barnett. He would also fight on that very last card against separate guys uh, wrapping up his run and both of them wrapping up their run with the promotion, of course. And, of course, they would both head over to the UFC once Strikeforce folded. But uh, that wraps things up. Besides Feijiao, no fighters tested positive for performance answers uh, or recreational drugs after this event. Total disclosed fire payroll of 768500 DC got 100000 including a $50,000 win bonus. Josh Barnett taking home 200000 so not a bad night for him. Gilbert Melendez got $175,000 with no win bonus. Josh Thompson got 90 in his losing effort. Feijiao got 66, including $33,000 win bonus. Mike Kyle got 25K. Chris Spang got 12 with six as a win bonus. And Nishan Burrell got seven. Very good event. Uh, you know, Chris Bang versus Nishan Burrell didn't fit in with the other fights, but it was still entertaining. Got to see some uh, apparently performance-enhanced brutality in the Feijal Kyle fight. Then two really memorable <laughs> wars in Melendez Thompson and DC Barnett. But really good stuff. I enjoyed it. Josh, what did you think? I thought it was a good show. For whatever it's worth, it got 100% approval in the Wrestling Observer new letter. Oh, I, I definitely, oh. Uh, you know, judge all my events based on, you know, based on that. So. Well, but I mean, I, I know, but I, I would say that, you know, most people thought it was a good MMA show too. And uh, I think it had to do with the fact that you had a really, really two strong main events, 
Chris Spang, you know, we had some good knockouts. Let's forget about how many people are in the audience. Let's forget about where Strikeforce is in terms of its history at this stage. And, you know, it's got a year left. There were some good fights inside the hexagon. So I thought this was a good show. Yeah, I enjoyed it as well. Uh, Coming up next week, you're going to hear my interview with former Strikeforce lightweight champions Gilbert Melendez and Josh Thompson. You are not going to want to miss this. Uh, Without revealing too much, we had a great time talking. You could hear there's still a respectful competitiveness uh, between these two 10 years after their last fight. Uh, In addition, my favorite single moment we've had since starting this podcast occurs. It's awesome, and you'll hear it. Uh, on the show, but I am this, it's a great interview. I've already conducted it. I got to do my editing, but uh, I I really enjoyed connecting with these guys and we were on video together. So these guys could see each other. Although Gilbert was wearing shades, like a, like a true OG. Uh, So it was hard to see his eyes, uh, Mm -hmm. but, or you couldn't see his eyes, but you know, they, they, uh, they, you know, cut it, you know, cut it up and Josh actually asked Gilbert a question or two and it it was interesting. So I I really enjoyed that. You are going to love that episode. Uh, After that, we're going to be covering one of Josh's favorites, Rockhold versus Kennedy, a very memorable fight there. Two title fights, Rockhold defends his middleweight belt against, you guessed it, Tim Kennedy, Tyron Woodley and Nate Marquardt lock horns for the vacant welterweight belt. In addition, Keith, the, the Dean of the Dean of mean Keith Jardine returns to battle. Hodger Gracie and Lorenz Larkin takes on Robbie Lawler. And then after that, you are going to hear my interview with Nate Marquardt. I'm really stoked that he's agreed to come on. I'm going to be interviewing him this coming week, and we are going to talk about perhaps the most brittle knockout in Strike Force history, the uppercut that changed Tyron Woodley's career, <laughs> in, <laughs> in our opinion. Uh, but I, I'm looking forward to that. So we got some good stuff coming up as we wrap things up, as we bring things to a close uh, on this podcast. We've got as I after this episode right here, we've got one, two, three, four, five, six more scheduled uh, event. I'm sorry, six more scheduled uh, episodes, and we're going to try to do a farewell episode. I'm going to see if I can get Scott Coker to come on one more time uh, to wrap things up. He was on our first episode. It'd be cool to have him on our last episode. Uh, maybe Rich Chow. We'll you know we'll see we'll see what happens there. But uh, but yeah, Josh, anything that you want to add before we wrap things up? Can you just? Tell Scott Coker how disappointed I was that he sold the company. That's all yeah. I have to say. No, yeah, uh, I'll just leave off with that. <laughs> we have a good show coming up. I'm looking forward to uh, hearing your interview with Thompson and Melendez. Uh, but, you know, this this is really cool. I'm surprised we only have a few shows left. But, you know, <clears throat> Strike Force, incredible brand, incredible uh, promotion. And, you know, so much stuff happens. So it's so cool to be able to go over these shows with you every week. Yeah, it's been a good run. Like I said, we still got a little time left. We got about uh, ooh, little little less than two months left as far as this podcast goes. And looking forward to riding that out with you, Josh. But uh, with that, uh, oh, I did want to mention, if you want to reach me, you can hit me up at fill it inside the hexagon.com. Would love to hear from you. But with that, we're going to go ahead and ride off into the sunset. Hope that you stay safe and you stay healthy. We'll see you soon.
Ready to up your game and learn more about the thrilling world of sports betting? Introducing Double Down with Breslow, the ultimate podcast about the business of sports gambling. Join me, James Breslow, and a long list of expert guests as we dive into the art and science of the sports betting industry. Evolving regulations, technology enhancements, and the meteoric rise in the number of players makes this sector the fastest growing and most intriguing in the world. Unlock the business secrets from many of the industry's most recognizable C-suite executives, including famous odds makers and influencers every episode of double down with Breslow is packed with insider tips deeply skilled analysis and in-depth discussions don't miss out on the ultimate resource for mastering the business of sports betting listen to double down with Breslow on the evergreen podcast network or wherever you listen to podcasts that's double down with Breslow the business of sports betting podcast